All that talk about uh, church buildings and things reminded me of, of uh, something else. Just, just a year ago, we had kind of set before us the opportunity, the possibility, the potential. What if, uh, in conjunction with the other, ch- other churches, what would it look like for us to participate in a church plant? What would that take? How would we do that? As that process developed, we, we analyzed, we looked into that, we considered. And um, one of the things that helped us in the midst of that project, which ended up now not being the right time for among us and the other churches, but, but one of the things we realized is it caused us to ask, what, did, what does it take for our church, for Brush Prairie, what does it take for us to again be used by God to plant another church in this area where it's needed? What does that take? What, what kind of a church is a church planting church? What does that look like? And uh, that's one of the reasons we have sharpened our focus in terms of what we are about is going to people around us, bringing others into God's family, building them up as followers of Christ because a follower of Christ is one who is going to people around them, bringing others into God's family, building them up as followers of Christ. Who will? Yeah, you see the circle. That, that what, do, what do we need to be doing? And so one of the reasons we embarked on, well, first of all, we, we spent some time talking about building, talking about building a temple. Don't ever let building the building, which is important, the family house to gather in and to care for others in is, is, is part of that. But building up the temple is building up God's church, that, that those who believe in Jesus are his temple, together are his temple. We spent some time in Haggai unpacking that, 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 that the Great Commission is a temple-building commission. That pushed us into this book of 1 Thessalonians. Why are we here? 1 Thessalonians is unique among Paul's letters to different churches in that this is one of the churches that Paul did on his journeys. He, he planted the gospel here. He started this church. The gospel was planted and grown here. A church emerges here. What's unique about this letter is we get to see what it took. That Paul, within a couple of months after being in Thessalonica, he writes back to them. And in that letter back to them, that's not unusual in itself. He wrote letters back to other churches, many of them. But in this one, in the letter that he writes back, he describes what he did while he was among them. And he he urges them to continue in certain things. He describes for us in Thessalonica, what did it take to plant and grow the gospel in the lives of others? to plant a church there in that town where there had not been faith in Christ before. And we can learn something from that because in many ways what it took to plant and grow the gospel in the lives of others then is what it takes to plant and grow the gospel in the lives of others now. So what are those foundational things that are essential for growth? That's what we're looking for in this letter to the Thessalonians. Consider it also God's letter to Brush Prairie. What will it take for us to plant and grow the gospel in others? Last week, in the first part of chapter 2, we looked at it, what it'll take a, is, is a boldness that we can step forward in confidence that God has sent us. You are the one to take his good news to somebody. 
that he has, he has he chosen us, he has sent us, and he is delighted when we step into following Jesus in doing what the Lord gave us to do. But as we do, how do we do that? What does it look like? What does it take to come to people around us who need Jesus? The passages before this morning, as we continue in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, the passage before us this morning is going to talk about principles for growing God's family look a whole lot like they do in growing your own families. So this means parallels. This passage is going to talk a lot about mothers and fathers. It's going to, it's going to teach us what good mothering, what good fathering looked like as the kids kind of unpacked a little a bit of that from their perspective. What does it take to be a father, to be a mother? And that this passage is going to speak not only to those foundations of family, but those family foundations are also essential for going with and growing the gospel, growing God's family. Let me give a little background for myself that will help you understand some of what I'm going to be saying about mothers and fathers. I didn't have a dad around for a lot of my growing up years. Um, for a lot of the time, dad just wasn't around much. He found other places to be. And ultimately, when I was in middle school, my parents were divorced, and my dad was around less. And by the time I was in high school, he was working in Alaska, so we saw him only occasionally. Now, what that meant with dad being around less, what that also meant that mom was in many ways not as much of a mom as she could have been, would have wanted to be, because she had to be in, both, in, in many ways both parents. She went from not being in the workforce and having what you'd call a marketable skill for, for years and years to needing to be the primary provider for four growing teenagers. I didn't realize how, mom, my, how hard my mom labored in those years, what that took from her only until later as I began to grow up. Teenagers, I guess, just don't get what is really it's taking from their parents. But that less parenting than God intended is one of the reasons I grew up as messed up as I am, folks. There it is. If you've been wondering what's wrong with me, that's part of the reason I ended up like this. There it is, okay? Not, not quite good enough parenting. Now, God's grace is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I, 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 I rejoice that I can say with Paul that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I trust his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not for nothing. It was not empty and fruitless. God has accomplished his working in me so that he would also then accomplish his working through me. It's amazing when I look back into my own background. How did we get here from there? I don't know except but the grace of God. And yet I wonder, I imagine, what might have been, what stumbles along the way could have been avoided if I'd had the full benefit of a mother and a father as God intended. I say all that to say this. And first of all, to you who are mothers and fathers or headed in that direction, little kids or old kids, it doesn't matter. What you do for the sake of growing others matters. It makes a difference. What you do or don't do will change outcomes, will change the tra 
but trajectory. And God will use the sacrifices that you make for the sake of others. Now, if that's true in our own families of mothers and fathers, it stands to reason that it would also be true spiritually in God's family. That's what God tells us. What you do in order to plant and to grow the gospel in others matters. It makes a difference. God has chosen to use you and he will use you. And what we do and even what we neglect will matter in the lives of others, just as you can see the impact and the differences in families. It's true in our own families. It's true in God's family, the church. What's foundational for growing family is also foundational for going and growing the gospel in the lives of others. Now, with that in mind, that's how I want us to approach this passage in Second. Second Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians, sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. We'll start in verse 5. You'll find us on page 986 if you're using a church Bible. And what I want us to see here is that Paul, by using essential family examples, family foundations, how to go to people around us for Jesus that we might, by his grace, bring them in to God's family. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, caring so much for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our own lives, our own heart, our own souls is actually the Greek word there. Because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any one of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you who believe. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In that text, we're given two examples, two main examples. And these are examples that we can all relate to because everyone has something of these two examples. You have some experience Whether your experience with these examples was what it should have been or maybe it wasn't what it should have been. All of us have some experience with mother and father. And maybe your example is is, was one of it wasn't what it should have been, but you know something about how it should have looked differently. You know something intuitively about what a mother should have been, what a father should have been. We have something of this in us. Maybe your experience with mother and father was actually wonderful and gave you a firsthand model of what it is that Paul is describing here. Either way, the main idea that flows from, the, from this reality of, of mothers and fathers in the life of a family is that the church and each local church as an expression of God's family is going to grow like this. The same things that are essential in family, that are foundational in family, are foundational in God's family, in God's church. Just as God intends mothers and fathers in a family 
give themselves for their children's growth. So, God intends for us. God directs us. God calls us, challenges, urges us to devote ourselves, to give ourselves away for the growing of others in Jesus, knowing him and growing and following him. First example Paul gives, he begins this comparison first with the mother and then the father. Concerning the mother, he, he starts with an interesting word, gentle. He says, we were gentle among you like a mother sacrificially nurturing. Verse 7. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because that gentle word has its own problem. In fact, some of your Bible, somebody out there has got a Bible that reads instead of gentle, it says, we came as children among you like a mother. And so Paul seems to be mixing up his metaphor. And what's happening is very early in the passage, in the copying and passing along of Paul's letter, there was a, a change somewhere from one word to the other. Scholars will argue about, is it supposed to be this one or that one? But it, it ended up being two different ways, like you have different Bible translations today. It ended up being two different ways of saying the same thing, the same idea. So it's not a, a problem that really concerns any of us. The, the idea of the gentleness there, or to as children there, as harmless as children, like Jesus said, to be harmless as doves. The idea being there is we come with a harmless and helpless and helpful humility. That we don't come in in a sense where, where we are bossy, pushy, know-it-alls, looking down. We tell how things really are. We, we, we become soft-spoken, unassuming, winsome, and pleasant. Not antagonistic and shouting and arguing, but convincing so it's, it's a different kind of stance, a, a, a harmless stance that can come alongside rather than trying to tower over and intimidate and force. That's the stance that's described here, a harmless humility. Realizes that sometimes I even actually need the help of others and it's helpful for me to need the help of others. I've got a project going on right now that I need my neighbor's help with. And there's some guys here in this church that I could also ask for your help. But that's not my plan. My plan is to ask my neighbor's help because this is a way that he can, and guys like to help somebody tackle a project and for him to be the one that because of what he does and what he brings, that's going to make this project go. And without him, I couldn't get it done. That's a great male bonding kind of time, isn't it? That's just good. The manly bonding. There's the movie line I was looking for. And, and he's, it's just good for me to, be, to need my neighbor because I've got something he needs too. He might not know it yet, but I do. And so for us to be able to exchange and to share things back and forth, there's a, a coming with a harmless humility there that seeks the other's good and is willing to exchange back and forth in order to get it. It might open the door. Following most Bible versions, however, we're going to stick with, a, with that gentle. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they came to a place that didn't know Jesus. There's no church there yet. They come to this town, he says, we came gently like a nurturing, devoted, and sacrificing mother. And we came like a hardworking father who challenges and encourages. Perhaps it's important 
to say here, as Paul uses both these words, and we're a little confused here, is Paul masculine or feminine? What's going on here? But as Paul puts both of these parenting metaphors together, he reminds us that they are both essential in complementing one another. There are things that mother brings and father brings into the family equation, and both are needed. Husbands and wives, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, one of the most important things that you can do to help the younger generation in your own family is to keep your own marriage strong and healthy. It matters. It makes a difference what they see in you that you pass on to them. Those following you will have the healthy input of both complementary roles working in tandem, not at odds with each other, competing or at tension, pulling apart. And imagine if, if they have what Bob didn't get. Imagine the, the start that you give them. That's why there's a ministry here at Brush Prairie that we love to support. It's called Marriage Team. I wanted to pause and I wanted to sneak in an announcement here because the text speaks to it. Something that is here in the text is said is valuable. What do we do in helping one another with that? Well, in keeping, in keeping families together, Marriage Team uses, they train experienced married couples. And what I mean by experienced married couples is couples who just know how to be married and actually enjoy it, like it. And they've been through their stuff too, all of us have. And yet they, they know what it is to be married and now they've been trained to coach others along in that. They're not marriage counselors. They don't have the answers. They actually kind of come in figuring, well, you guys have the answers if we can just start kind of talking about things again. And sometimes a couple... Sometimes a couple will be kind of just in a rut. They've developed patterns of how they interact together and it and, 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 and becomes a rut, but somewhere along that rut you kind of get stuck. And now the wheels are just spinning. And the wheels are spinning, sometimes they're also slinging mud, right? Is this, is this sounding familiar at all? And what you need is you need somebody else to come alongside and help us get out of this rut and kind of get back into a new lane again, and kind of a helpful nudge in the right direction. That, to me, kind of describes what marriage team is good for. One of these couples, not professionals themselves, but they've been down this road, and now they've had some training input. There are couples in our church that have been trained by marriage team to come alongside others as a coach in a relationship for 12 weeks. And they walk alongside. They're like friends you've invited in to walk with us because we want somebody to help us in these areas, in this way, whatever that looks like for a particular relationship. And they do that. Sometimes those 12-week friendships and coaching blossom into its own continuing friendship but just coming alongside others. It's something that we in the church can do for others outside in our community as well. And so there's the opportunity. You might be hearing about this. You might know of somebody that they could benefit from that marriage coaching. Then uh, contact marriage team. If you want to talk to me more about that, I would love to give more information. Marriage team is also now, coming up in March, they're offering a coach's training. If you're hearing about this and you say, I'd like to know more about that. You can try on the coach's training to see if this coaching thing seems right for you. Because right now, you don't know what it is. I don't know if that fits me or not. So within one or two weekends, they will, they will work you through that training along with others, and that'll help you know, is this a good fit? We've had couples that went through and said, boy, this has been really helpful for us, but we're 
we're not sure that we're, we're coaches of others. Others who have taken it and run with it and are now on. We have folks here that are on marriage teams hall of fame for the number of other couples that they have walked with over several years now. That's exciting to be a part of that out in our community. I say all that just, just again to underscore the importance of these two critical roles, together in family and so together in God's family. Paul says when he came to this place to plant and to grow the gospel, this is what it took. First, let's get into mothering then before our time is completely gone. Two com- critically important complementary roles. Paul says we came to you like Gently, like a nursing mother toward her own children. We were affectionately desirous of you. We cared for you. We longed for you, some versions say. We devoted to you our own lives and hearts. Just as a mother's instinct and interest is toward her children, so our interest is directed by God toward the needs of others. We unpacked the text ahead of time in a Monday morning men's Bible study in my office. And um, one of the guys this last week was sharing about how one time when they lived in California, there was more earthquakes there than here, although we're, we're headed for one, I hear. But, but um, one morning, he's, he's on the porch. I don't know if he had a cup of coffee, but all of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and it's starting, and he's watching this go on. He's, he's seen buildings sway. He's seen trees moving, power lines, you know, going this way and that way because the power lines end up slapping together. Then, then transformers are exploding. Man, this is fascinating to watch, right? And he's standing there on the porch watching this. And he says, you know what my wife did? My wife headed straight for the kids to care for them to protect them, to make sure they're not scared, to make sure they're okay, to make sure they're safe. We are easily distracted and fascinated by things going on, but a mother's instinct is to go to the kids, to care for them, to watch out for them. And she, she gives herself, she pours out her own life in so doing. That, that priority of others, that di- discipleship is a priority. It describes a heart toward others that we need to nurture and practice. And you could say at this point, really, Bob, if I was going to be totally honest with you, which I won't be, but if I was, I would tell you that I'm really fairly selfish and I really don't care as much as I need to about others. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one, Okay. But there's some of that in every one of us because that's the essence of the fall, a selfish self-centeredness. So it's there. It's part of the problem. And what I would tell you is this. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I would tell you, you want to care more for others? Start investing in somebody. Start taking some of your, your, your time, your own talents, maybe even your treasure, and invest it into somebody in their growth and their development and their knowing Jesus or their walking more fully with him. And as you do, you'll start to care for them. Sometimes we have to point ourselves in the right direction and give ourselves a nudge. Or maybe it's the Holy Spirit that's actually doing that. But go ahead and take a next step toward giving something of yourself to others and that will stir within you more of an interest in others. This mother's example is one of sacrificial generosity. She will feed them first before herself. She'll buy them clothes instead of going to Macy's. She'll wash and cook and feed and teach and play before she ever takes time for herself. Guys, that's why at the end of the day when you come home, she's done. 
She hands them off and goes to the other room, right? Maybe that's what it looks like. It's been a long day. Mothers are a picture of what it looks like to devote your own self to another for their good, for their growth, for their development, for them to know Jesus and follow him well. It takes the sacrificial giving of yourself away. It's going to take a laying aside, a putting up there on the shelf of your own ambitions and what you'd like to do for the sake of somebody else. I want to ask you, just pause for a minute, think, who is it? Who is it in your life now, outside your own mothering and fathering, who is it that you would expend your energy or should expend your energy, your reserves for, to see them know Jesus, to see them grow in their following of him? Every one of us should be somewhere in this, in his family. Who would I give myself to? To know him or to follow him? Paul's second image, second example or metaphor for making disciples is a hardworking father. So we've had the mother, now we have the hardworking father. Planting and growing the gospel in the lives of others takes hard work. Paul describes it this way, laboring day and night. Now, I think the laboring day and night phrase actually points back to mothering as well as it points ahead to the fathers. It's not intrinsically linked to just the fathers, even though it's in that paragraph. So I think it actually reflects both. The, um, when, when our kids were little, I was still in the Air Force, I'd go off to work each day and there I am teaching electronics or I was working at the, uh, at, uh, the base in Spokane or whatever it was at the time. Sometimes the guys would ask me, so does your wife work? We've got three little ones at home then, soon to be four. Does my wife work? My standard answer was uh, a lot harder than I do. You know, I could go to work. I could get away from the ongoing constant demand of little people. I could converse with, well, somewhat mature people all day long. She didn't have that luxury. And yet she gave herself, devoted herself to them. And so whether she works in the home or out of the, out of the home, yes, she worked in those days much harder than I did. But just as a mother's instinct is interest toward her children, so also the father and the hard-working father. And that's what's being described here. That father who, who works, Paul says, day and night. And that's what they did. They weren't supported by the Thessalonians as they shared the gospel with them, but they worked at night or they worked during the day in order to provide for themselves so they could give themselves freely to others. And I thought about that, working day and night. And I thought about... That happens a lot in the church. We have staff positions in the church where, where we are supported to give ourselves full time to particular work in ministry. And yet we also have a lot of positions, a lot of serving, a lot of crucial ministry. Most of the on the grounds connected to the lives of other stuff that happens around here happens one to another by those who are working day and night in order to do it. They are working elsewhere in their own jobs, in their own families, and they are working, laboring, giving themselves in God's family. They are studying for that Sunday school class that they're going to be teaching. Or they are preparing for the home group, the discipleship group that they're a part of or that they're leading. Or they are, they are 
spending the time for that behind-the-scenes serving that nobody knows about. They're, they're spending time during the week as well as early, early before anybody else is here on Sunday morning in order to prepare to serve together on worship team. So much of the serving that happens around the church is laboring day and night in order to do this. Our own labors, our own requirements, as well as giving ourselves away for the sake of God's family. That's what it looks like. That, how's that? Where do they find the time for that? We all have the time. We all have the same time, right? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? In fact, I did the math real quickly, 168 hours a week, if, if, if my math is correct. Now, if you're sleeping eight hours a day, take out 56 hours, that still leaves you 112. But you're working full-time. Let's call it 50 hours a week. Take that, those 50 hours away, and we've still got 62 left. Now, this is important. Four hours of TV a day, so that's going to be 28 hours. We take out that four hours of TV a day, and you've still got 34 hours of daylight left. Well, not in the winter around here, I understand. But there's still 34 waking hours still. We're all doing something with them. And I'm not trying to get any of you to push and squeeze all that you can out of every hour and become your own slave driver trying to matter more or make a difference. That's not what I'm saying. But I do know this. When you carve out some of that time that God has given all of us, and you say, this is not for me, this is, this, this is going to be for others, and you begin to give yourself away, there is where you're going to find your joy. There's where you're going to find your delight. There's where you're going to be experiencing his delight as the Father is in the midst of that with you. Didn't Jesus tell us, the one who loses his life for my sake is the one who finds it. There it is. This is what I was made for, to, like Jesus, even pour myself out for the sake of others. So the hard working, that giving ourselves for the way for the others, but there's more that he talks about the Father. He says that these fathers came. He says, you know how we were among you. We were upright men among you, that how we live devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly. They came to people who didn't share their faith, and yet they were devout about it. They were serious about what they believed that God had said. You're in the midst, many of you all week long, with people that mock your faith. They ridicule it. They live in open antagonism to it, and yet you will take it seriously. You will continue to live in and walk in that which you know to be true, that this is what God has said and this is what he's called you to. Whether others mock you for it or not, you know, there was a choice that Lot and Abraham made early in the story. Lot heads toward Sodom, and Abraham heads toward Beersheba. And at that time, Sodom was, was in the midst of the very fertile Jordan River Valley. And I've been to Beersheba, and it is barren. It's dry. Abraham was willing to take that to pull himself away. I don't know if Abraham just didn't want his son under Lot's influence. I'm not sure what all was going on there, but, but they separated. But later on, as, as Lot moved into Sodom and ended up sitting at the gates of Sodom, and his family is the, Im, Im, immersed into that culture, when trouble came, the servant of Lot living in Sodom, when trouble came, they knew who to go to for help. 
they knew to go back to old Abraham, who imperfectly but consistently was following the God that he believed. And when they needed help, they knew where to go. So it may be that as you, as you live devoutly, believing what you know to be true and living in it in, the, in front of others, you may be mocked and ridiculed and poked at, and yet they'll know who to go to. They'll know who's real. They'll know who's sincere when trouble comes. Devoutly, upright, blamelessly, false accusations they might say, they won't stick. If they're going to accuse you of something, let it be for doing good. Paul doesn't say here that we should be perfect, that he or we are perfect. We're just serious about it. We're going to be consistent. This father's comparison, he sounds like dad the coach. This father is, is exhorting or encouraging, is the first word. Or he is he's also encouraging or comforting or consoling, some of your Bibles read, for the second word. And the third word is he is urging or he's insisting. This is a father who's doing three things that are essential for coaching. What Paul describes here are three things that are essential for any kind of development. When I was with our mission in Africa, the last three years we had an ongoing, about, about almost a three-year effort in leadership development among our senior leaders. And we chose a model that did certain things because we were learning from somebody else's very large and yet, in many ways, futile undertaking. They had had a whole series of training where they gave out information and skills to leaders who would then go and train 20 others, the idea being there would be one million Christian leaders trained around the world. Halfway through, they begin to evaluate how are things going, how are the practices and what these leaders are actually doing, what does it look like, how is it different, and they found after all those efforts in training and giving out new information and, pers- and, and um, perspectives and training new skills about how to lead others, they found almost no change in the leaders' practices because they had a series of training events where they gave new information and new skill, but they have nothing to connect that and move that into day-to-day experience. And so people came back with training, like they do in your workplaces, with a a binder that describes all the neat stuff they learned that goes up on the shelf, and it becomes an enduring monument to temporary learning, right? And many of you have been in those kind of situations. You've been there, you learned it, you forgot it, and life and work goes on. Paul describes something different here in Dad the Coach. It's a coaching model or a development model that works because it is also a discipling model. Let me throw it up on this fence image that we came up with. There's information, there's new skills that are given at particular times and events and training. But what makes the difference of working that into life is an ongoing relationship. You could think of it as a developmental relationship, a coaching relationship, a mentoring relationship, or how about that Jesus word, a discipling relationship. Because discipling is coaching or mentoring or developing others in their walk with the Lord, right? Okay, so a discipling relationship includes these three things. Challenge, you can do this. Have you thought about, this is the stretch goal. This is taking you from where you are a little farther, putting that out ahead of you. Assessment is honest evaluation of where are we at now compared to where are we trying to go. This is the coach with a stopwatch. That was good, 58 seconds, but you've got to get to 46 if you're really going to make it. Okay? 
honest assessment, feedback of how you really are, what's really going on at present, and along with that support. If we're going to challenge, if we're going to step forward, it's not going to be perfect, and when something goes wrong, am I going to be cut off? Am I going to be left hanging on my own, or are the people around me going to uphold me? Help me pick back up and keep going, take another step forward again. So that challenge and assessment and support, those three together are the environment that is needed to develop anybody. I don't care if it's coaching sports. I don't care if it's developing leaders in industry or developing, discipling followers of Jesus. And that's what the Father does here. We exhorted, we encouraged or comforted, and we urged or insisted and required Those three words, those together stretch you to go further, help you along the way, and keep the goal in view. One without the others, we just challenge. Some of us just challenge. Some of us are just supportive no matter what. Some of us are always measuring. And any of these alone by themselves are going to be either pushy or squishy or legalistic. But together, together they coach, they mentor, they disciple. And that's the example. Men... The beauty of it is that works. That's work, that works with fathering. You want to stretch your kids to go a little further, don't you? And that's true whether your kids are 15 or 8 or whether they're 32 or 37. You want to see them go a little farther. And it takes challenge. It also takes supporting them. And it takes assessment of where we are compared to where we're going. And the same is true no matter who you're walking with in the, in the Christian life. It takes these same things. And that's what, Peter, or that's what Paul tells us right here. That as a father seeking your growth, you know how we were among you and how like a father, verse 12, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged or insisted, required There's the assessment. These family examples describe a classic relational discipleship for evangelism and spiritual growth. It's it's a family relationship. It's a family development. You're going to have to set some limits if you're going going to participate. If you're going to truly invest in others. But these examples call us, just like they do in mothering, in fathering, these examples call us to make intentional choices. I'm going to do this and not do that. I'm going to decline that in order that I'm able to do that which is more important. I'm going to sacrifice for somebody else's benefit. It may mean that you're going to need to sacrifice a just time in a church program so that you have the margin within your life to come alongside somebody else. You need to participate in something that's going on in the community outside of church because there you're going to rub shoulders with others and you're, you're going to develop relationships with people whom you go to because you want to be used by God to bring them in, into God's family, see them walking and knowing and growing with him. It takes intentional choices. What do we not do to allow us to do something that matters so much more? If these examples, if Paul says, I came to you as a mother, I came to you as a father, if those examples were that powerful in first century Thessalonica, where in the Jewish community certainly the family structure was fairly tight and healthy, 
Fathers and mothers were there, and yet their coming like that made a difference. How much more today when people all around us are looking for somebody who would care for them, like a mom, looking for somebody who would come alongside and walk with them and challenge and encourage, coach them like a dad. Our culture around us is hungry for that. And yet, as we would come, mothering, fathering, if I may, as we would come, this is not a strategy, this is not a technique, this is being who God has made us to be. This is manifesting God's nature, his likeness to the people around us. God's nature is to be a father to the fatherless. Jesus said that he came and he would have gathered them as a hen, a mother hen gathers her chicks. God's nature is to take those who are outside, those who are desperately on their own, without hope and without God in the world, and to make them his own. That's what God does because that's who God is. That's what he did for us, Ephesians chapter 2. If that's what he's done for you, then that's what he calls for you to do in the lives of others. God showed the world his likeness when he sent Jesus. Here he is, God in humanity, that we could know God. And then Jesus said, I'm going away, but Jesus sent his disciples to go so that others would know Jesus and therefore know the Father. And the disciples also have come and gone, and now God sends you. God sends me. As unready and as imperfect as we are, and yet we're the ones. We're the ones that God sends. That God shows people around you. Think of it. God shows people around you his likeness through you as he first did through Jesus. Am I saying too much there? Have I just gone too far? Or is not the spirit of the living God actually transforming us from glory to glory, from likeness to likeness into the image of Jesus? And as God works his work in us, wouldn't he delight to show it off to somebody else, to bring them along also. Come near into the lives of others. It'll cost you, but do it. God calls us to it. Go to them. Bring them into God's family. In so doing, you will build one another up. You will build yourself up in your following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want what you want. We want more in your family of what you've called us as a family to be. Father, we want to take a next step of giving ourselves away for the sake of another. Lord, we want more of this, more like this in that which you've already given us, a place of service, relationships with others. Father, help us to be devout and upright there. Help us to be gentle and loving and caring and nurturing there. Father, help us to invest our own lives, the resources that you've given us. Father, would you also show us really clearly for each one, who is that one? Where are they? Who do I need to go to? and to be willing to give myself in investing in them. Father, we pray that this offering now would simply be a token of that.
that we would give this because we do give ourselves for the good, for the sake of others, for Jesus being known and there glorified in our church and in our community. And we pray, Lord, that you would take not only these gifts, but you would take our own lives, use them for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agree said, amen.